Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. Trusting in the Lord is the antidote to fear. And there are so many things that we can be tempted to fear. The world would have us to fear. We can suffer from a fear of man. That pleasing others becomes much more an idol than we ever thought it would be. We can suffer from fear of failure. That I must present a perfect image to all around me. That then becomes an idol of sorts. We can suffer from fear of catastrophe. Trying to manage life such that nothing ever truly challenging will come my way. And that the goal is simply to get to the end without having been stressed. We can suffer from fear of taking risks. That life becomes one long attempt to mitigate all risk, to avoid anything that might go wrong. And that also can become an idol. The Association of Certified Biblical Counselors put out an outstanding article just a few months ago called Fear in Pandemics. And their analysis was that the pandemic is bringing basically two types of basic fears. And this is written to Christians. Now, this is an oversimplification, but it makes a good point. These two types of fears, first of all, the first fear on one end of the spectrum, we might say, is the fear of losing what you think is normal in life. The fear of losing what you think is normal. And because of this, then we make zero concessions, zero adjustments whatsoever. And we see this, of course, all around us, that we must have everything normal. On the other end of the spectrum, though, the second fear, they call it the response of hysteria. And they call this a desperate sense of self-preservation to the point of paralyzing fear, where you can't live because you're in that fear. So what are we to do? What do we do about fear? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ told us to combat fear with the truth of who God is. Jesus said in Luke 12, verse 4, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. And he goes on to say, rather than, rather than that, fear God. We really have no basis for fear. This particular article was helpful in its direction to those who were helping others, to pastors and counselors and so forth. The author said, quote, we need to be very pastoral in the way we respond to people and help them. We can't just say, well, just have peace or just have faith. Those things are true, but we need to help people walk through the process of how to, by faith, cling to who God is. What breeds that faith is reminding them once again who God is, what his character is, how he treats those who are his. Those who are found in Christ are no longer at war with him. We are at peace with God. And really, there's the ultimate antidote to fear, and that is to trust in the Lord, to trust him. Now, one of the greatest ways that we can learn to trust the Lord is to pull the curtain back Behind the sovereignty of God, go to the halls of heaven and and pull the curtains back this way and pull the curtains back that way and, and peek inside and see what's actually there. See into the control room of heaven, so to speak, and find out what's actually happening. How the perfect sovereignty and the providence of God are working behind the scenes. Now, in reality, we can't do that. 
We can't look behind the curtain into the halls of heaven. Instead, what are we called to have? We're called to have faith. We're called to have trust. That whatever goes on behind those curtains is good and right and perfect. We trust in the Lord that what's happening in those secret recesses of the mind of God is good. Now, the Lord knows we can't see his sovereignty. He knows that we can't see into the inner sanctum of the mind of God. And so once in a while, just once in a while in Scripture, God gives us a little tour of the behind the scenes workings of heaven, of what he's doing. He does this, for example, in Job chapters 1 and 2, where we see the interaction of God and Satan and how this impacts the life of Job. God does this in Daniel chapter 10, where we see that the demonic realm of fallen angels attempts to control nations and governors governors and kings and governments, and that the angels of God then battle against them. And God gives us a behind-the-scenes look at his work on behalf of his beloved Israel in our text for tonight. And we're going to be in Numbers chapter 22, 23, and 24. We're going behind the scenes with the sovereignty of God. Now... Israel has just come to the plains of Moab. They are beginning to prepare for the conquest of Canaan. We saw last time that this gets set up at the beginning of Numbers chapter 22, verse 1. Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And we saw before that now they are literally in sight of Jericho. They are in sight of their objective. They can see where they are supposed to be going But now, all of a sudden, for three chapters, Israel fades into the background. We kind of put a little time out on where they are. And we find ourselves in the courts of Balak, the king of the Moabites. Chapter 22, verse 2. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw that all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pithor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Ammah, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now. Curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand, and they came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message. Well, tonight I'd like to follow a classic Puritan sermon outline. We'll go back a couple of hundred years Here's a Puritan sermon outline. I'd like to give you the explanation of the text. I'd like to give you the doctrine of the text. And I want to give you the application of the text. So we'll do application, uh, explanation rather, doctrine and application. This is really an epic drama in these three chapters. So I don't want to overcomplicate it. But first, let's just do the explanation of the text. We'll let the story unfold before us. There's really nothing else like it in the Bible. We'll be reading a good portion of the story because it really kind of tells itself. King Balak of Moab, he's terrified of Israel. And so he's hired this self-proclaimed prophet, not a prophet of God, but of the demonic arts of divination. He's hired the, the prophet Balaam to curse Israel on his behalf. 
Balaam's motto was, you fill my purse, I'll give a curse. And that's what hung outside his office. And so some of the officials from Moab and Midian, they brought their money, they brought their divination fees, and they gave him Balak's message about coming to curse Israel. Balaam would be well-practiced in the wicked black magic arts of divination using animal entrails, interpreting the flying of birds, and using other animals even to attempt to know the future. And what we're going to see in these texts is that the, the theme of blessing and cursing is very prevalent. It's big. Words related to blessing happen 11 times. Words related to cursing happen 16 times. And so that's the crux of the issue. A spiritual battle is about to ensue. It's underway in which the forces of darkness want Israel cursed, but God is sovereign over the whole event, and he's about to demonstrate his utter total control. Now, as far as Balaam knows, he's about to make a handsome fee for saying a few rude things about Israel. That's basically what he's going to do. He'll make a show of it. He'll cut up a bunch of animals and set some things on fire and and make it look really good. But he's likely about to be set up for life with enough wealth to never have to uh, do any divination again as long as he lives. Now, here's the irony and here's the ignorance, though. Apparently, Balaam thinks he can coax the God of Israel... In his mind, just one of countless gods, he thinks he can coax the God of Israel into turning on Israel and cursing Israel himself. Chapter 22, verse 8, And he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. And so these princes of Moab are staying with Balaam. And lo and behold, God actually does come to Balaam and speak to him. We're not told how, we're not told in what form. But interestingly, Balaam doesn't really act surprised. Why would that be? Very likely, it tells us that he may be used to hearing voices from the spirit realm. But this one, of course, is different. God interviews Balaam, and Balaam truthfully tells him what's happening. That Balak, the king of Moab, has hired him to curse Israel. But God says, not so fast. Chapter 22, verse 12. God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So the next morning, Balaam gets up, tells the princes of Moab, sorry guys, you're out of luck. God won't let them go. So the princes go back to report to King Balak the failure of their mission, but Balak won't have it. Chapter 22, verse 15, once again, Balak sent princes, more in number and more honorable than these. And they came to Balaam and said to him, thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, let nothing hinder you from coming to me. For I will surely do you great honor, and whatever you say to me, I will do. Come, curse this people for me. But Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. Now you notice that Balaam calls Yahweh the Lord his God. Don't let that fool you into thinking that Balaam is a true worshiper of Yahweh. He's not. What he is, is a shrewd man who's starting to figure out which way this is probably going to go. And he wants to be on the winning side. And he's beginning to discern that Yahweh is not a God to mess with. But, not to be rude, Balaam hosts the greater princes that night, tells them he'll inquire of God once more. And we get a surprise in verse 19. So you two, please stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. Here's the surprise. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. 
So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. Now, remember, this is about the sovereignty of God. And God knows what's in Balaam's heart. Balaam took this as an opportunity to get back in business with Balak. Maybe he can make something on this after all. And God is not happy about this. In the very next verse, verse 22, But God's anger was kindled because he went. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey and his two servants were with him. Verse 23. And now's where it just gets a little bit weird for our understanding. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. The donkey saw the angel of the Lord. She saw the drawn sword of one ready to battle. So the donkey's no fool. She wanders off into the field. She's like, I'm just a donkey. I don't need this battle. So Balaam beat the donkey to get her to go back onto the road. This time, the angel of the Lord stood in the narrow path between the vineyards, which had a wall on either side. And again, the donkey saw the angel of the Lord. And since there was no place to run, she just rammed Balaam's foot up against the wall. And Balaam beat her again. A third time, the angel of the Lord now stood in a narrow place where the donkey couldn't go in any direction. And when she saw the angel of the Lord, this time she just lay down in the path, which makes the rider of the donkey look like a total fool, sitting there on a donkey on the ground. And now Balaam is furious, and he starts beating her again. In chapter 22, verse 28, Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, And she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, because you have made a fool of me, like not talking to a donkey is not making a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand for then I would kill you. Now, the obvious question here is why does Balaam not seem surprised that his donkey is talking to him? We're not given an explanation, but the best explanation I've seen is that Balaam is used to Things like animals and spirits speaking to him. He is a, a, an artist in the black arts. And so this is maybe not a shock to him. But we're not told. And so it is a bit amusing to think that Balaam is in an argument with his donkey. And what's even more amusing is that Balaam's going to lose the argument to his donkey. Chapter 22, verse 30. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, no. He lost. The donkey outthought him. But remember, as one of God's creatures, this donkey is more spiritually attuned to God than Balaam is. This donkey knew to bow before the angel of the Lord. But all that's about to change. Balaam's eyes are about to be opened. Verse 31, Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, here's a turnaround, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. What did Balaam want to do? Balaam wanted to kill the donkey. And the angel of the Lord said, no, you would have died. The donkey knew what was right more than Balaam did. 
And now Balaam is terrified of God and he's going to obey him, not out of love, not out of devotion, but just self-preservation. In verse 36, when Balak heard that Balaam had come, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab on the border formed by the Arnon at the extremity of the border. And Balak said to Balaam, did I not send you to call me? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? In other words, don't you know how much money I can give you? And now Balaam is very clear. He says in verse 38 that he can only speak the word that the Lord has given him. But now he starts his divination show. He cuts up some animals sort of as a pre-show warm-up, we might call it. And in chapter 23, the main event gets started. Balaam tells Balak to build seven altars. And on each altar, a bull and a ram are to be sacrificed. These are not sacrifices prescribed by the Lord. This is merely Balaam putting on a smoke and mirrors show here. Balaam goes off by himself and once again God met with Balaam. And Balaam told God about the seven bulls and the, and the rams. Kind of like God was supposed to be impressed with that somehow. And God spoke an oracle to Balaam. And so Balaam returns to Balak. All the princes of Moab are gathered. Balaam is going to curse Israel. Here it comes. They're all going to be saved. Now, let's just step back for a moment. Remember that the Israelites have no clue that this is happening. They they don't see this. God is working behind the scenes with this ridiculous scenario that has unfolded with Balak so desperate, so spiritually darkened that he doesn't think about one option, and that is, how about I worship the God of Israel? Instead, he's trying to curse Israel. But in his mind now, all of Balak's dreams are about to come true. Here comes the curse on Israel. Balaam <clears throat> clears his throat. A word of prophecy that King Balak has been waiting for. Chapter 23, verse 7. And Balaam took up his discourse and said, From Aram, Balak has brought me, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come, curse Jacob for me, and come, denounce Israel. I can imagine King Balak kind of elbowing the princes of Moab and saying, Here it comes, this is going to be good. Verse 8, Balaam says, How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the crags I see him. From the hills I behold him. Behold a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. And Balak goes nuts. Balak says to Balaam, what have you done to me? I told you to curse my enemies and behold, you have done nothing but bless them. And he answered and said, must I not take care to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? Now, apparently, Balaam had been in a place where he could see the massive camp of Israel. And thus, he calls them the dust of Jacob. This is phenomenal to me to know that Israel doesn't know this is happening. And yet, this drama is happening where they could have. If they just turned around and, and, and looked, they could have seen. And so Balaam has been able to see the might of Israel. So Balak gets an idea. King Balak says, you know, maybe Balaam was just intimidated by the massive numbers. Let's get him someplace where he won't be so distracted. And so let's try this again. Chapter 23, verse 13. And Balak said to him, please come with me to another place from which you may see them. You shall see only a fraction of them and shall not see them at all. Then curse them for me from there. 
So this time, Balaam's view is more obstructed. Balak's thought is, you know, maybe if he's not so intimidated, he'll be brave enough to give this curse. Balaam goes through the whole show again, seven altars, seven bulls, seven rams, sacrificed. He goes off to hear from the Lord. And once again, King Balak and all the princes of Moab gather. Verse 18, and Balaam took up his discourse and said, and this oracle gets even worse. Now God addresses Balak directly through Balaam. Rise, Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? That's sovereignty, by the way. Behold, I received a command to bless, and he is blessed, and I cannot revoke it. And now a promise of coming destruction comes Verse 22, God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of the wild ox. This is a picture of God as a wild ox just swinging his head and goring everything in his path. Verse 23, for there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, what has God wrought? There's no spiritual curse. There's no magic. There's no trick. There's no divination which can stop God from blessing and protecting his people. Nothing can stop him. And now Balaam pictures Israel as a predator being roused to action to hunt its prey. Chapter 23, verse 24, Behold, a people, as a lioness, it rises up, and as a lion, it lifts itself. It does not lie down again until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. Okay, now King Balak is nervous, and he decides to change tactics. His new tactic is, how about we just kind of lie low and go neutral at this point? Verse 25, and Balak said to Balaam, do not curse them at all and do not bless them at all. In other words, let's just back off and just see if nothing happens here. But Balaam explains that God's voice will be heard. Verse 26, Balaam answered Balak, did I not tell you all that the Lord says that I must do? Now we need to understand the pagan mind for a moment. In the ancient Near East, the polytheist believed that his gods and all the gods of the pantheon of all the gods were territorial. In other words, they're not all-knowing. They're not everywhere present. And so to a certain degree, you can sort of roll the dice and go against a certain god if you think maybe he's not there. And so Balak's thinking is if he can just catch Yahweh, the God of Israel, in a place where he isn't there, where he isn't listening, then he can quickly slip in this curse really quick to be protected from the ravaging army of Israel. Balak's motto is, third time is the charm. Chapter 23, verse 27, And Balak said to Balaam, Come now, I will take you to another place. In other words, maybe God won't be there. Maybe he won't see where we are. Perhaps it will please God that you may curse them for me from there. Seven altars, seven bulls, seven rams. But this time, Balaam does something different. Instead of the usual trying to find omens in the entrails of the sacrificed animals, instead of putting on the Balaam show, Balaam is entranced. He's absorbed. He's engrossed at the sight of the camp of Israel because apparently everywhere Balak takes him, he can still see Israel. That tells you how big they are. Chapter 24, verse 2. And Balaam lifted up his eyes. And saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him. And this time, 
in Balaam's third oracle, the beauty and the majesty and the splendor of God's people overwhelms him as the Spirit of God speaks through him. Verse 3, And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel. Balaam's spiritual eyes are opened momentarily to see Israel as God sees her. Beautiful. And in fact, Balaam sees Israel not just as a people camping in tents. He sees them as an established nation of loveliness and splendor. Verse 6, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside the river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. What is that? That is an established nation. That's a nation that's been there for centuries. Verse 7, water shall flow from his buckets and his seed shall be in many waters. What does that mean that the seed shall be in many waters? This is a euphemism for saying that the nation will continue to multiply and grow into countless multitudes of God's people. But now that the vision of the beauty of Israel has overcome Balaam, he gets back to Israel who has a God who is all-powerful. In verse 8, God brings him out of Egypt and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries. He shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched. He lay down like a lion and like a lioness. Who will rouse him up? Blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. And now Balak is furious. Verse 10, and Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam and he struck his hands together. Now, what does that mean? To clap your hands together at someone in the, in the Near East, ancient Near East, this was a terrible insult. This was to say, I've had enough of you. It's a sign of extreme anger and disgust. Balak tells Balaam, you'd better run. I was going to pay you handsomely, but now you'd better hope I just let you live. But Balaam doesn't go. And before he leaves, he does two things. First, he reminds Balak of what he said at the very beginning of all this. Chapter 24, verse 12. And Balaam said to Balak, Did I not tell your messengers whom you sent me? If Balak should give me his house full of silver and gold, I would not be able to go beyond the word of the Lord to do either good or bad of my own will. What the Lord speaks, that I am going to, that I will speak First thing he does is he reminds him, I told you up front, I can't say anything other than God commands me. The second thing Balak does, he says, we're not done. I have more from the God of Israel to tell you. Verse 14, and now behold, I am going to my people. Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. And now Balaam lets loose with more oracles about the domination of Israel. Verse 17, Moab will be crushed. The people of Sheth will be broken apart. Verse 18, Edom is doomed. Sire, the region where Edom dwelt, will be taken away by Israel. Verse 20, the nation of the Amalekites will be destroyed. Verse 21, the tribe of the Kenites will come to an end. All these in that area. Verse 24, ships from Katim Katim, which is the island of Cyprus, they're going to come and dominate the tribes of Asher and Eber. The Katim peoples would later be known as the Philistines. And then the Philistines will be destroyed as well. By whom? By Israel. Now, 
This whole drama has taken place outside the knowledge of Israel with God defending them and blessing them. And it comes to an end, very weirdly, in this anticlimactic fashion. Chapter 24, verse 25. Then Balaam rose and went back to his place, and Balak also went his way. That's it. No explosions, no battles, nothing. The clear implication is that both Balak and Balaam are the losers in this contest. They both lost. Neither has bent the knee to the true and living God, and they will pay. Who are the winners? God and Israel. They're the winners. Well, that's the explanation of the text. Let's stick to our good old-fashioned Puritan sermon outline and talk about the doctrine of the text. What are the theological implications of this mighty drama? This saga is so steeped in the sovereignty of God his total control over everything, that really the theology of this passage must be focused on sovereignty, his total and complete control of all events in history. And so I'd like to give you five theological implications concerning the sovereignty of God. The first implication, God sovereignly controls the extent of sin. God sovereignly controls the extent of sin. The redemptive plan of God going all the way back to the Garden of Eden All the way forward, God controls everything. When Balak attempts to sin and Balaam attempts to go along with it, God puts the brakes on. No one is going to curse his beloved Israel. Now, the key to this truth is chapter 22, verse 18. Once again, chapter 22, verse 18. But Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. And then he repeats himself. Chapter 24, verse 12, And Balaam said to Balak, Did I not tell your messengers whom you sent me? If Balak should give me his house full of silver and gold, I would not be able to go beyond the word of the Lord to do either good or bad of my own will. What the Lord speaks, that I will speak. Those identical statements of Balaam form the outline. They form the bookends of this drama. That God is demonstrating that history will only go the way he allows it to go. The way he ordains it to go. And cursing Israel to fail was not in the cards for Balak and Balaam. Why not? Because God holds all the cards. He made all the cards and he arranged all the cards. There is nothing random. There is nothing coincidental. Nothing happens by accident. And this is a major lesson also we learn in the opening chapters of Job. Satan wants to afflict Job, a faithful servant of God, but Satan is only permitted to do to Job what God allows him to do. Sin only goes as far as God allows it. I don't know about you, but I find this very comforting because right now, doesn't it feel like sin in our world is going unchecked? Like it's out of control? We're beset by massive sin right now? I think most people are in agreement that the election in November is going to cause more riots no matter who wins the presidency. We already see this coming. We see massive sin right now by those in power who are defending the right of government to restrict our ability to worship God while simultaneously praising violent, lawless protests of those breaking good laws such as laws against vandalism and theft and looting and assault and even murder. But does that mean that God is out of control? No. All this, even injustice, happens under the divine Sovereign plan of God. Now, that doesn't mean that we're passive. doesn't mean that we're inactive. doesn't mean that we just do nothing concerning the sin all around us. We're called to condemn it. We're called to call it what it is. 
And if we're in a position to do so, we're called to stop it. But we're never going to think that somehow God is losing his grip on the world. All is going according to plan. And that's very, very comforting. There's a second theological implication concerning the sovereignty of God. God sovereignly uses unbelievers for his own purposes. God sovereignly uses unbelievers for his own purposes. Chapter 22, verse 9, God came to Balaam. Now, what's the big theological question here? If God spoke through Balaam, doesn't Balaam belong to God? No. That's the short answer, but I'll tell you why. Balaam is not a true prophet of Yahweh. I want to give you four reasons. He's not a true prophet. This is a big theological question. We want to camp on it for a moment. First reason, in the very next section of Numbers, Israel will, in fact, rebel once again. They will. And the strong implication by virtue of the placement of this story about Balaam likely tells us that Balaam told Balak, cursing Israel won't work, but seducing Israel with false religion will. So he's not a true prophet. The second reason Balaam's not a true prophet, Balaam clearly speaks what he does not believe from a God he does not personally love or trust. He doesn't believe this. He doesn't trust God. Now, this is very interesting. All through this story, whenever Balaam refers to God, he calls him Yahweh, the covenant personal name of God. But this is sort of the modern day equivalent of throwing around the phrase, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I know Jesus. I love Jesus. But when God addressed Balaam, God never called himself Yahweh, the covenant name of God with his people. He always calls himself Elohim, the generic distant name for God, which in fact is used in the Old Testament for false gods as well. Balaam did not have a personal covenant relationship with God. Let me put it this way. Balaam may have claimed God, but God had never claimed Balaam. And our our question is never, have I claimed Christ? The question is, has Christ claimed me? So no, he's not a true prophet. And of course, you notice that even the donkey recognized the angel of the Lord, but Balaam was spiritually blind. There's a third reason Balaam is not a true prophet. Balaam only speaks truth when God threatens him. He only speaks truth when God threatens him and limits Balaam. Listen, a a true prophet of God desires and yearns to speak God's word. There's a, a yearning and a longing that it must happen. Now, in chapter 24, the Holy Spirit comes upon Balaam. It's not showing him to be a true prophet, but it's just showing that God is making certain that Balaam will only speak God's words. And my fourth reason, in case you don't believe reasons one, two, and three, in Numbers 31, when Israel goes to battle with the Midianites, Israel kills Balaam. He's an enemy of God. Chapter 31, verse 9. And so God sovereignly uses unbelievers for his purposes. And in this case, it seems that this use of an unbeliever is connected to an event which happened immediately prior in Numbers 20, and that is the rebellion of Moses. Moses is a believer. He is the spokesman of God, but Moses rebelled against God. He was disobedient. And from now on, it's very interesting that after that event, God turns to use an unbeliever. And from now on, Moses is really not used of God tremendously, with one exception, the final exhortations to Israel, which make up the book of Deuteronomy. And we should remember that we're in the final months of Israel's wandering years. They've camped on the plains of Moab. The death of Moses is just a couple of months away. And so God uses this unbeliever 
And here's irony for you. And a warning to all who think that they're indispensable to God. In all the Torah, in all the Pentateuch, all the first five books of the Old Testament, Moses is certainly the greatest of all the men who speak for God. But you know who the second greatest speaker of God's word is? It's Balaam. And even Balaam has to be corrected by a donkey who is godlier than he was. I have many, many times heard very humble preachers say, if God can use Balaam's donkey, maybe he can use me. The second greatest speaker in God's word in the Pentateuch, Balaam, God sovereignly uses unbelievers for his own purposes. Let me give you a third theological implication. It's going to get a little technical here, but this is important, and this is a major thrust of this text. God sovereignly keeps the Abrahamic covenant. God sovereignly keeps the Abrahamic covenant. If you're not familiar with the Abrahamic covenant, here it is. God made an unconditional covenant with Abraham, a covenant, by the way, that is still in force today. The first record of this covenant is found in Genesis 12. This is God speaking to Abraham. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who curse you, and him who dishonors you I will curse And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And look at the end of Balaam's third oracle in chapter 24. Balaam speaks of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. Chapter 24, verse 9. He crouched, he lay down like a lion, and like a lioness who will rouse him up. Blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you. God is repeating his commitment to the Abrahamic covenant. Now, Israel has been disobedient before this drama. They're about to be disobedient right after this drama. So you would think, actually, at this point, cursing Israel would be fairly easy. Then maybe God would even say to Balaam, go for it. Those reprobates won't obey me anyway. Do your worst. They deserve it. But no, Balaam is limited by God. Chapter 23, verse 8. Here's his limitation. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced. And in fact, in this same oracle, Balaam marvels at the sheer numbers of Israelites. Verse 10 of chapter 23, who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Also, chapter 24, verse 7, water shall flow from his buckets and the seed shall be in many waters. This massive population explosion. What did God promise Abraham? In a reiteration of God's covenant with Abraham, God promised him in Genesis 22, verse 17, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. As a matter of fact, God repeats his covenant to Abraham, to Abraham's grandson, Jacob. And he says, Genesis 28, 14, to Jacob, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. What would we call that? Jacob's dust. And Balaam here says, who can count Jacob's dust? Who can count? Why did Israel not die in Egypt? Why didn't they die trying to escape Egypt? Why didn't they get swallowed up in the Red Sea? Why didn't they die wandering in one of the most desolate places on earth for 40 years? Because of the Abrahamic covenant. And God is a covenant-keeping God. God doesn't Bless Israel and prevent a curse on Israel because they're deserving. 
but because of his promise. And nothing Balaam can say will change what God has determined to do for Israel. As a matter of fact, who do we see playing a major role in guarding the integrity of the Abrahamic covenant? We see the angel of the Lord to whom even a donkey bows. In the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is a technical term used to speak of a very, very special messenger of God. And often the angel of the Lord speaks as if he is God. He receives worship as if he is God. He gives commands as if he is God. Why? Because he is God. He is the physical manifestation of God himself, pre-incarnation, pre-Bethlehem. To whom did the donkey bow? To the Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham met the angel of the Lord in Genesis 18, which opens with, And the Lord, Hebrew Yahweh, the covenant name of God, appeared to Abraham. And how did God appear? He appeared as a man walking with two other men. We would find out later, two angels. The Lord Jesus Christ acts as the guardian of Israel all throughout the Old Testament. By the way, in Israel's history, we saw the angel of the Lord At the beginning of Israel's time to leave Egypt when he appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Not as a burning bush, but in the burning bush. And God, the angel of the Lord, has been guarding them. And the angel of the Lord not only accepted, but demanded worship of Moses. And he demands worship of Israel. The Son of God guards the Abrahamic covenant. And he guards you as well. He guards you if you've placed your faith in in the Son of God, in the angel of the Lord, whom we know as Jesus Christ. This is so important for us, and this is why that for us as Christians, God's relentless and His unyielding faithfulness to Israel is so encouraging to us. It has important implications for us that if, if God is that faithful to Israel when they're continually rebelling, we have confidence in Him when He says of us, 1 John 5, beginning in verse 11, that this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And you might say, well, I've been sinning like crazy lately. Yeah, that's right. And God may chasten you, but you may know that you have eternal life. And you might say, I've been saying things I don't want to say. I've been doing things I don't want to do. I've been thinking things I don't want to think. I'm ashamed. That's right. But you may know that you have eternal life. And you might say, if you knew everything that I've done, you would say, I don't deserve to go to heaven. I would say, that's right, you don't. But you may know that you have eternal life. God has given Israel to us as a model. (laughs) That if God will keep Israel, he can keep you. That simple. Which also, by the way, is why the Abrahamic covenant, God promising Abraham that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed, that in Christ Jesus, the chosen descendant of Abraham, every people, tribe, tongue, and nation will have citizens of heaven. Who is that? That's us. That's us. God sovereignly keeps the Abrahamic covenant. Let me give you a fourth theological implication, and they're going to get progressively a little more technical. Fourth theological implication concerning God's sovereignty. God sovereignly protects the future dominion of national Israel. God sovereignly protects the future dominion of national Israel. 
Remember Balaam's third oracle in which Balaam is captivated and mesmerized by what he saw as the beauty of Israel? Chapter 24, verse 6. Like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. Balaam was seeing a prophetic reality which reminds us of what? It reminds us of the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 2 gives this glorious description of the Garden of Eden. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. We also remember from Exodus 26 and Exodus 36 that the inner curtains of the tabernacle, which Moses was to build, the traveling worship center of Israel, they were to be interwoven with the images of angels. The lampstand in the tabernacle was to be carved to look like almond blossoms with flowers, Exodus 25. The hem of the high priest's garment was to be woven with pomegranates. What is this? The tabernacle itself was a representation, a reminder of Eden. And it was through the tabernacle that God would commune with his people that that through sacrifice they could, in a sense, return to Eden for a moment. Later on, in the design of the permanent temple in Jerusalem, 1 Kings 6 describes the inner walls carved in the form of gourds and blossoming flowers, golden angels carved into the inner sanctuary, palm trees, open flowers carved in everywhere. And in the place of the presence of God, it became a reminder of Eden, which had been lost to sin, but it was hope for a future restoration, a future redemption of mankind from sin. But that wasn't the end game. That's just the intermediate step. God's intention in redemptive history is to return the whole earth to an Eden-like reality. In the coming age, Isaiah 35 says that the wilderness and dry land shall be glad, the desert shall rejoice and blossom. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. And who does Balaam see at the center of this return to paradise? He sees Israel right in the middle of it. But Israel isn't just going to enjoy a future redemption of the earth. They're going to dominate the nations of the earth. They will be preeminent. Remember Balaam's fourth oracle in chapter 24 where he pictures Israel crushing her enemies, exercising dominion over many nations. Many say this is speaking simply of the coming conquest of Canaan, that the conquest is going to be successful. And perhaps that's the near fulfillment of this prophecy that there's one clear and one key variable to that conquest and dominion of the nations, which means it is for certain yet future. What is that variable? It's our fifth theological implication. This one's long. Here we go. God is sovereignly orchestrating the coming of his king to earth. God is sovereignly orchestrating the coming of his king to earth. This conquest of the nations in this last oracle will happen under the rule of a divine king in the far and distant future. Now, at first, Balaam's word from God is vague. It's general. In the second oracle, he merely says that there is a king-like presence among Israel. Chapter 23, verse 20, Behold, I received a command to bless He is blessed and I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them and the shout of a king is among them. And Balaam probably doesn't even know he's met that king when he was riding his donkey. But then he gets more specific. 
Remember the Eden-like description of Israel? Look at it again, chapter 24, verse 5. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside the river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. Waters shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. The king of Israel with innumerable Israelites reigning in a kingdom higher than Agag. That's a prophetic reference to a coming king of the Amalekites, which Israel would crush in 1 Samuel 15. And his kingdom will be exalted. What does it mean when the kingdom is exalted? It means it's above all the other kingdoms. All the other nations. Dominion through the king. Now, if you still think that's a little bit vague... If you don't believe me, now Balaam's going to make the dominance of Israel under the divine king on earth obvious. Chapter 24, verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Sair also, his enemy, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. What is this from? This is from the prophecy Abraham's grandson Jacob gave of the tribe of Judah in Genesis 49. Don't turn there, just listen. Genesis 49, verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. Like the, from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Here it is. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The coming conquering king all the way back in Jacob's prophecy is like a lion and a lioness crouched to hunt. Remember what Balaam said? Chapter 24, verse 9. He crouched, he lay down like a lion and like a lioness. Who will rouse him up? And of course, we remember that this star, a star shall come out of Jacob. We remember that the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ was made known to the wise men. How? By the arrival of a star, a miraculous star. And we recall one of the names of Christ, a name that he gives himself. Revelation twenty two sixteen. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. God's purpose for Balaam was not just to protect Israel from the curse of King Balak. It was to remind the world that Israel someday will have dominion over the earth because someday her king is returning. And he won't just be king over Israel. Zechariah 14.9 says, In that day he will be king over all the earth. That's the explanation of the text and the doctrine of the text. Let's look at the application of the text. We'll just do three and we'll be done. The application of the text. The sovereignty of God is the anchor of our trust in the Lord. That if those five theological truths all rooted in sovereignty, if those are true, 
And we can trust him for ourselves. And so I want to build our applications around the idea of trusting the Lord. The first application is clear. The coming of Christ is meant to build your trust in God. The coming of Christ is meant to build your, tr- build your trust in God. I've heard Christians say that understanding and thinking about the end times doesn't matter. That's ridiculous. A third of the Bible says that it matters. It's not entirely clear how this episode here that happens in these chapters in Numbers was given to Moses who recorded it. Could have been simply God dictating verbally to Moses this portion of Numbers. And I I have to put on my sanctified imagination if Moses is simply hearing from God and recording this. I can imagine him going, seriously, this was going on right under our noses. But in any case, this is knowledge that would be passed on to Israel when Moses records the entire Torah, the Pentateuch. And Israel is now given some of the clearest indicators that they do have a glorious future. There is a glorious future which will come into the reign of the coming king. Remember what Balaam said at the end of chapter 24. I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. What does this do for us? This sort of knowledge is meant to bolster your courage to help you look ahead when what's happening now isn't that exciting. Isn't that great that you too can look at a desert landscape and you can see the future. You can see how lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel. You can see with the eyes of faith like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. You can see a future ruled solely and only by the Lord Jesus Christ. The second application to the text. Beware of being close to God, but not trusting him for salvation. Beware of being close to God, but not trusting him for salvation from sin. King Balak and the prophet Balaam argued on this earth, but they both lost. They both shared the same fate of being crushed by the God they refused to worship. Balak heard the prophetic word of God in four personally arranged sessions. Balaam spoke the very words of God, the second greatest prophet in all the Pentateuch, and yet both of them would be among the lost, among the judged. They should have been like Rahab, the harlot of Jericho, who sought God's favor, sought God's mercy, sought God's grace, and she was rescued by Israel in the book of Joshua, just months away from this episode, by the way. Hebrews chapter 6 warns of the one who's been very churchy, very associated with God, very associated with God's people without having been regenerated to new, new life in Christ. Hebrews 6 verse 4 says, It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, in other words, you've heard the truth, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, meaning you've been around people who have the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. That is not a picture of a true Christian losing his salvation. There is no such thing. That is a picture of somebody who was very churchy, very religious, associated with God's people, heard the truth, saw the truth, saw the wonderful things that happened to Christians and around Christians and walked away. And what does the text say? It says it is impossible to restore them to repentance. Hebrews chapter 10. 
says that there is a day in which God says, no, you will not be forgiven. There's a third application of the text. Trust the Lord when there are invisible spiritual battles being fought around you. Trust the Lord when there are invisible spiritual battles being fought around you. When does that mean you need to trust the Lord? All the time. There is always an invisible spiritual battle. Demonic powers working through King Balak wanted to curse God's people Israel. And Israel never knew until later that God had fought that invisible battle on their behalf. What's happening today? I'll tell you what's happening today. And I'm not going to read the newspaper because it's useless. I'll read from the Bible instead. Ephesians 2 verse 2 says that the prince of the power of the air, Satan, is at work in the sons of disobedience. He's fighting his corner for the world that he still claims. 1 Peter 5 8 tells us, be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 5, Paul warns that Satan will tempt even a wavering marriage with immorality. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11, Paul warns that we should not be ignorant of Satan's designs so as to be outwitted by him. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, Paul warns that Satan disguises himself as what? An angel of light. 2 Corinthians 12, 7, Paul speaks of a particular human antagonist in the church itself whom he calls a messenger of Satan. 1 Thessalonians 2.18, Paul told the Thessalonian church that he wanted to come see them, quote, but Satan hindered us. Now, rest assured, your salvation in Christ is secure. Rest assured that God is sovereign over all things. But there is a spiritual enemy, and he fights dirty. He doesn't fight clean. And his primary method is cunning and deception and trickery at a supernatural level. Something he's been doing for thousands of years and you've spent, what, maybe a couple of decades trying to recognize his plans? That's why Paul commands us in Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Can I put it this way? If you think that you can by your own logic, by your own intuition, by your own experience, always know the full spiritual situation in any given context, then Satan has already won a battle in your heart using your own conceit and your own overconfidence against you. Do you honestly think that coronavirus is really just about a disease? Do you honestly think that the virus is the issue? Look what is happening to the church of Jesus Christ. It is being splintered. What do you think is really happening? Put on spiritual eyes. Listen with spiritual ears. Don't be dull. Don't be deaf. Listen with the heart of one filled with the Holy Spirit. Can you believe the headlines? Maybe. Believe the word of God, though. There is a battle going on. And for anyone to say that there's not, 
How do you know that? Have you been into the deep recesses of the mind of God? Have you been in Job 1 and 2 where God and Satan are going at it? Have you been in Daniel chapter 10 where the princes which recognize uh, nations as their own, these princes who are demons are in battle with the princes of heaven? Have you seen all of that? Have you taken the curtain back to see what coronavirus really is about? No. So anyone who says, oh, it's not a spiritual battle is ignorant and is immature and is conceited. If you haven't given much thought to the spiritual battle raging around you, I got to tell you, you're a prime target because like a master fighter pilot, Satan comes up on your blind spot. And he will nail you. He can't render you ultimate harm. But he can do damage to your life. And he can render you even effective. And so what do you do? You trust the Lord by running. Not walking. Running. To the spiritual armor of God. As explained so clearly in the rest of Ephesians 6. But then we also remember the great comfort given by the Apostle Paul. Apostle John, rather, in 1 John 4, beginning in verse 3, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. Oh, listen to this. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That the spirit of God in you has overcome the evil one. You have all the tools you need. You need not fear Just be vigilant. And so we end where we began with a tremendous admonition from Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, help us not to be afraid. Help us to be spiritually mature by trusting you, knowing that there is a spiritual battle raging all around us in the invisible realm. And yet we are safe and protected from the ultimate harm of losing our salvation. We're safe and protected from the ultimate harm of losing our relationship with you. Those are, those are ironclad promises. We are sealed in the Holy Spirit. And yet at the same time, we're told in 1 Peter 5 to beware of the devil He prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But we're told to resist him, firm in our faith. And then we will be confirmed. Our Lord God, we recognize that there is a battle raging around us. We recognize that it is so complex, so detailed, that our heads swirl and spin. And so we crawl helplessly to the cross and we cling to Christ. We cling to our Savior and we would ask you for the strength to simply be faithful. For husbands to love their wives, wives to submit to their husbands, for children to obey their parents, for the ministers of the gospel to preach the word at all costs, for the church to be faithful, to spread the gospel to the lost, to disciple the saved. And might we be faithful to these things until Christ would give us relief until he would return. Let us be faithful as we trust in you. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.